Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. As we proceed through the Gospel according to Mark, we need to recognize that even though Mark records many of the times Jesus heals and teaches great numbers of people in the huge crowds that he's attracted, But he also is recorded to have had these intense personal times and interactions with individuals. We need to remember at this point that something's going on here that was prophesied in the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah. Let's review. I'm just going to read this from Isaiah 35. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, that's today, we'll see. And the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is what was prophesied would happen when the Messiah came. The recompense and the vengeance that's talked about was fulfilled when Jesus paid the price for sin and God condemned him on the cross and he died. So the people that Jesus is ministering to should have had a clue Because these are events that do not happen regularly. These are events that signaled and authenticated Christ's first coming. And so far in Mark, we've seen nine individuals who have had intensely personal encounters with Christ. Remember the man at Capernaum in the Capernaum synagogue with the unclean spirit in chapter 1? The leper... Also in chapter 1, the paralytic who was lowered through the roof of that house in chapter 2. The man in the synagogue on the Sabbath that had a withered hand and Jesus healed him. The man in the Decapolis region possessed by demons called Legion in chapter 5. A ruler of a synagogue named Jairus and whose daughter was on her deathbed also in chapter 5. The woman who touched Jesus' garment for healing, who had an ongoing hemorrhage, also in chapter 5. Then in chapter 7, the Syrophoenician woman and her demon-possessed daughter, and the deaf man with unintelligible speech. That's quite a list. These were miracles that were not normal. They authenticated who Jesus was. And Mark is weaving these personal encounters into his gospel to show just how different King Jesus is from what people usually think of when they think of a sovereign ruler. The second person of the triune God who has taken on human flesh in his mission to deliver a people from their sin, is demonstrating 
and intertwining of his divine power and sovereignty and his personal love and care for individuals like you and me. Jesus Christ is especially focused on opening his own disciples' eyes to who he really is. He is God Almighty in human flesh and God the Savior, mankind's only hope. He can open up all the scriptures to reveal truth, still mighty storms, heal any sickness or disease, create food out of nothing, and exercise complete authority over unclean spirits, and even raise the dead. And at the same time, he rescues sinners, he speaks directly to a broken heart, he comforts the hurting soul, he encourages the faint-hearted, and he gives anyone the real purpose of life itself. Jesus is the king. That's Mark's theme. Jesus is the king. He's also the bread of life. And once again in our text today, he's a gentle healer who opens the eyes of a blind man to faith in him. If you are able, would you please stand as I read Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. Be reading from the English Standard Version. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, how many friends do you have that are like this blind man's friends? The setting here is in Bethsaida on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee near where the Jordan rivers enter into that lake. And this means that these are mostly Gentiles, since this was Gentile territory. And the next thing we notice in this passage is that the blind man knew some people who really did care about him. We aren't told how they knew about Jesus, but at this point, who hadn't heard about Jesus? We do see in the text that these folks were convinced that Jesus could heal the blind man. And evidently they were fairly sure that all was needed was for Jesus to what? Touch him. Does that sound familiar? Remember the woman with the hemorrhage? All she was trying to do was touch the hem of his garment. Now, 
left open to conjecture here is whether they had more trust in Jesus' touch than in Jesus. And there is a distinction. This would be a similar attitude to that hemorrhaging woman back in chapter 5 who thought, and we hear this quote in that text, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Well, what's important for us to realize in our passage today is that the blind man's friends not only believed Jesus could heal him, but they were sure they knew how Jesus would and even should heal him. Let that sink in for a second. They were sure that they knew how Jesus would and how he should heal them. Most of us also fall into this kind of erroneous thinking, especially regarding salvation at some point. It's very easy to think that our particular experience in coming to Christ should be what everyone else should experience. If you came to Christ when you heard Billy Graham, you can easily think that everyone else should come to Christ by hearing an evangelist. If you raised your hand at some service or walked down the aisle, then that's the way it happens. If you were reading some passage of Scripture when God opened your eyes and you believed, then that's the way it should happen for everyone else. If you had some crisis and then an exciting conversion then that's the way it should happen from everyone, for everyone else. If you were tied to some tree at some camp around a campfire and had to pray the prayer before they'd let you go, and somehow you managed to really sincerely do that, and you know that's when you became a Christian, then I hope God spared everybody else who he brought to himself. They didn't have to have that one. And if you don't know exactly when God brought you to spiritual life, but you know he did, then it's awfully easy to think, what, that you missed out on something. In fact, it's not our experience that is normative, but our belief. And in that we rest our faith on Christ alone, trusting him for salvation. Well, the people who brought the blind man to Jesus wrongly expected Jesus to do it with a touch. What about the blind man himself? What do you think he expected? Well, we don't know. But what it looks like is, as we read this, we're thinking, well, I don't know what he expected. Probably not much. That's probably right on target. It looked like they dragged him to Christ. Well, how can we assume that? There are two things in the text that help us understand this a little bit. First, we notice what his demeanor was, and the blind man's initial demeanor was less than enthusiastic. And the way Christ dealt with him, secondly, shows how Christ brought him along step by step. This guy needed some convincing, some help in coming to faith to see what would actually happen. And these people that brought him were the ones who begged Jesus to touch him. Did you notice that? The blind man made no appeal on his own. 
And coming up in chapter 10, two chapters from now, we get a completely different picture of a certain blind man asking for Jesus' mercy. We know his name. His name is Bartimaeus, a blind beggar in chapter 10. As he heard that Jesus was passing by on the road, he began to cry out himself and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And when the crowd told him to be quiet, he cried out all the more. Well, that's quite a difference. Jesus took our blind man through a progressive healing, we could say. Because Jesus wanted the man to have a faith that matched the miracle that he was going to perform in his life. So what did Jesus do with this blind man who was probably a Gentile, who was willing but wary and cautious about what was about ready to happen? Well, first, we see that Jesus took the blind man by the hand. This is the touch the blind man's friends were probably waiting for or expecting. But what happened? Nothing. Not what the people expected. Jesus' touch was all the blind man needed, or was it? What about the blind man himself? I hope you realize that by taking his hand, Jesus was making a very personal gesture. This is not a handshake. The blind man now knew that this, was, that this Jesus was actually interested in him and his plight. Can you picture that? Jesus takes his hand. So, do you think his expectations, the blind man's expectations, began to come to life a little bit right then? What's the second thing Jesus did? He isolated the man. We read that Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus gently and carefully guiding the blind man out of the village, probably with his disciples following along behind. There are only three occasions in the healings in the Gospel of Mark in which Jesus withdrew from the crowd to heal someone. And on this occasion, it seems that Jesus not only wanted to get away from all the chaos and clamor and excitement generated by the crowd. I mean, Jesus is there everywhere he shows up. He heals and does miraculous things. Let's go see it. It wasn't just getting away from that kind of excitement. But he also wanted to be able to establish his own personal care for this man to help him along in his faith. How special. Think about this. How many people in the Bible were ever led by the hand of God our incarnate? That should make you almost tremble right there just to recognize that he did this very personal thing. Well, third, 
Jesus used physical touching to communicate his care and what he was going to do. To gradually heighten the blind man's faith, we read when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. We told the joke last time Jesus did the spitting thing, not huge, uh, that the germaphobes among us may have a little problem with this. This is, this is a way to communicate what he was going to do. And it was a lot more common at this time and in this kind of culture and society than what we think this is. It's a beautiful picture here. Beautiful. And we need to get beyond the little spit thing and realize what this meant to the man himself. He was communicating by his touch what he was getting ready to do. And by doing this, Jesus was getting a connection with him that this man would understand because he could feel it. He could hear it. And it was gentle. So Jesus had his attention. And as our Lord held his fingers firmly upon the blind man's eyeballs, the man's heart had to be pounding a little more than it had been just a moment before. His hope and his faith were building. Well, what did Jesus do next? He removed his hands and he asked the man, Do you see anything? And we read, and he looked up and he said, Well, I see people, and they, but they look like trees walking. Which gives us a hint. He could feel trees, hear the leaves blowing. Maybe he had actually been able to see when he was little. But he knew that something was there, but it wasn't clear. Who did he see walking? Probably the disciples in the back. Again, what is Jesus doing this time? Now, Jesus here, on purpose, partially healed him. And critics will jump over all over this. Oh, man, he missed the first time. He had to try again. How ridiculous. We see him bringing this man to faith. And everything he did was on purpose and for a reason. Well, why is he doing this partial healing? It wasn't because he didn't have the power. Jesus didn't even have to be there. All he had to do was command it and it would happen. But do we realize that in this partial healing... For the first time in this man's life, or at least most of his life, this man saw light and color. First time. And he saw forms that were moving. Jesus and his disciples walking like trees. And Jesus saw the blind man's belief begin to soar. You could hear it in his voice and in his answer. The man's faith was far more important than his physical healing. And then finally, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, 
And he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, period. Short, concise, to the point. Can you hear Peter giving this account to Mark? It's where Mark got most of his information. The last phrase, and he saw everything clearly, has a very precise meaning. It means to see clearly from afar. In other words, what is that saying to us? 2020. He could see. And then Jesus gives him this, what many think is a strange warning in verse 26. And he sent him to his home saying, don't even go into the village. Why? What's going on here? We've already seen this warning given to several others in the Gospel of Mark, have we not? Jesus' purpose in coming amongst us in his first coming as the incarnate Son of God was not to create excitement, and therefore encourage all sorts of false expectations about some soon-to-be political deliverance from the Roman Empire, which is the way most people took this, what he was doing. And by sending this man directly to his home with the warning to not even enter the village, Jesus also shows his care and his concern for this particular man. Because after what Jesus just did for him. It's so important for him to be able to calmly think about or meditate on the great blessing that he just received. And by going straight home, he would be able to do what? With those he loved, his family probably still there. He'd be able to talk about it with those nearest and dearest to himself. Without what? Interference from this crowd that was probably going crazy or would go crazy when they found out exactly what happened to him. But see, that hadn't happened yet. He bypassed the crowd in the village and went straight home. So he didn't have to deal with the first century version of the journalist who can't quit. That's important. Do you see how this flows with Jesus' care and concern in bringing this man to faith? There's a lot of lessons in here for us. The Lord's miracles were much more than events of healing. They were actually parables of spiritual reality every one of them what do I mean by that well the progressive healing of the man's blindness reveals to us that God sometimes heals or works or leads or saves us in in inscrutable stages that we just can't partially or even barely see or understand. And I would be willing to throw this out, that most of us are either in that right now, or have been, or we know we will be again. In a stage of God's work, in a stage of God's leading, 
In Isaiah 55, 9, we read, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Be honest. We want to have all the answers right now. And when you have to wait for answers, you learn a whole lot about how faithful God is. And he knows how much to reveal. In Psalm 77, 19, we read, Your way, O Lord, was the way through the sea, and your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen or hidden. What is that referring to? The Exodus going through the sea. What is it saying? Your way, O Lord, was through the sea, but you didn't leave any footprints. Get the point? God sometimes leads us in the same way. He opens it up. He leads us through. And we want proof. And we want to be able to understand why and how and every question that you've got under the sun. And many times we don't get those answers. Or how about Romans eleven thirty three? Paul just has learned to just kind of say, God, you're great, whatever you want to do. This is his way of saying it. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable his ways. That doesn't mean we don't ask him what they are and how to see them and how to be attentive. But what are unsearchable and inscrutable supposed to tell us? We need to learn this lesson. In other words, God's ways are often hidden. But do you still believe that he knows what he's doing when we don't know all the details? So we ought to come to God for his grace and leading and in us and through us and with us and is working in us and is healing us, but we must not attempt to tell him how to do it. Like this blind man's friends. Just get him to touch you and it'll be okay. There's a lot of examples of this. We may and must ask for spiritual growth but we must not we must not lay down the guidelines as to how God ought to produce this. How many times does that have to happen to us before we finally finally get this? I remember the heady, exciting times at college at a huge secular campus. When some Christian that we all respected would show up and give us tools to stand up in the middle of a class and ask the right question. 
or when he would speak on some incredible topic and thousands of people would show up. Exciting. We saw God work and do incredible things to get people's attention about who he was. But does he have to work like that every time? So in those heady days in the discipleship classes and the training and learning the, the foundational doctrines of the faith and teaching them to other people, it was real easy to think. We become a Christian, wow, we're going to have this kind of response every time. Have you dealt with that? Well, we must not also ask God to develop our spiritual lives. We're genuinely asking him. And then when he pulls out the shears and begins to, begins to prune us in order to develop our spiritual lives, Lord, you can't do it that way. Do you see how that doesn't fit? You can't call him Lord and then tell him he can't do it his way. We can't ask the Lord to make us sensitive to other people and then resent the difficult person who crosses your life at work or in the church right after you pray the prayer. I didn't mean him or her. God is committed to rooting out our pride and our presumptuous spirit. Would you agree? And he often uses a friendship, a discipline, a hardship, a spouse, a neighbor, a parent, a sibling, the person you've known forever to bring about our growth and grace. Honestly, when you've grown the most, has it been circumstances or people that you least expected were the instruments that God used? in order to accomplish his purposes. Many times it's not. And in our salvation, God does not always do things in one precise moment that we can observe and then go put a stake in the backyard with the date and the time. Many of you don't have a clue when that precise moment actually happened. But you know from the change in your heart and your desire for him and his word that it did. I'm one of those. But I did make sure and go down when Billy Graham came to the Astrodome in 65. My brother went because he wanted to go down on the baseball field. It's funny to think about those times now, but we must realize that God works differently with different people and how he brings those he's chosen before the foundation of the world to himself. You know, we think about Paul on the Damascus Road in a flash of light. We read that, 
And then we go out on some road and we're waiting. But others of us receive as little light, a little light, just a little light, and then more and more and more until they see everything clearly. And that's this blind man that we looked at in our passage. The bottom line is that we must submit to God to do his work and will in his own way and time. And that is what trusting him really is all about. If we trust him, he's God. We are not. We can't put God into a box that we design. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, Paul writes, We are God's workmanship. And literally, that means what the Creator makes us to be. And many times, that word is used of an artist, or a sculptor, or a poet, or an ancient version of an engineer. Do you get the point? The design is his, and it fits you alone. We are individual works of our God Almighty, our Creator, our Lord and Savior. And the process is unique in each one of us. I believe somewhere we read that he is the potter, and we're the dirt, oh, excuse me, clay, Thank goodness. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. We come to celebrate the Lord's Supper that our Lord instituted on the night and he was which he was betrayed and we realize first there's some things we really got to get straight about this is that primarily this is not a meal appointed for the physical body and on the night Jesus was betrayed they had actually finished the big supper before this one was instituted This was appointed for our souls. And it goes back to what we've been learning in Mark already, that Jesus is the bread of life. He's our sustenance. He's our nourishment. He's our reason for living. And Jesus teaches us through his scripture that we receive true spiritual nourishment when we focus on And believe in Christ and who he is and what he's done. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is is it not a participation, the word for communion there, in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation or communion in the body of Christ? And we know that this is a reality that's hard to get our heads around, 
But that's why it's a physical reality, so that we see what we eat and drink. We touch it. We put it in our mouths and taste it. And we swallow it. All what? Picturing how Jesus is our sustenance and then our bodies live off of it. Our souls live off of Christ. And that's what this is a picture of. Because only he is the one who can give this life. Our souls are nourished because we are believing in Christ's person and saving work for us.